The Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Good evening and welcome to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman. Over the next hour, we will review the current international economic, business and geopolitical issues that impact markets at home and abroad. If you want to contact the show, you can do so by emailing thecurrency at newstalk.ie or tweet us at thecurrencynt. This week, the banking landscape. Professor of Finance at Trinity College Dublin, Brian Lucy, joins me in the studio to discuss ECB interest rates and a third force in Irish banking. The price of independence. As top FTSE 100 companies issue economic warnings to Scotland ahead of their independence vote, we talk to the Daily Telegraph financial editor James Quinn on whether Scotland can afford political freedom. And a market outlook. Owen Callan of Danske Bank gives us his views on global markets, emerging risks and Chinese defaults. But first, Europe arrived to the capital this week as Dublin played host to the European People's Party Congress. During the two-day annual event, the EU's largest political party discussed topical issues such as the Ukraine, corporate tax rates and Irish austerity. The most anticipated element of the Congress, however, was the nomination of the party's candidate for next year's European Commission presidential campaign. Here in the studio to fill us in on the highlights is Europe correspondent with the Irish examiner, Anne Cahill. And there was a lot of praise for Ireland's success in exiting the bailout, and rightly so. But did this praise turn into reassurances that a promised bank deal would soon be offered? Not really. When you listen to the language, it was all very good. And when um, uh, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel appeared to be saying that there was something wonderful around the corner, she was in fact saying that the single banking union was wonderful and just around the corner. And uh, when pushed on this, it really wasn't going anywhere. Because really, I think everybody knows at this stage that... um, Ireland isn't interested in selling all its bank shares for a paltry four or six billion, which is as much as we get for it, having pushed in 24, 26 billion into them. Uh, so they'll be worth, you know, in no time if we keep going as we're going, these will be worth a hell of a lot more to the, to the state. Uh, but I think what Ireland is doing is what it's good at playing politics. And, uh, when you're small, uh, you have to keep, uh, everything you can in your back pocket to use at a future date. So I think everybody is playing this game very, very well. And at some stage uh, further down the line, um, maybe Ireland will produce it. And you never know. I mean, at the, the uh, macroeconomic report that the Commission produced during the week, headline was banking still very fragile. And okay, while it all looks well for for stress tests, at the same time, they are a little bit worried about things there. So you never know. It could be very useful further down the line. And do you think uh, the Taoiseach and Kenny actually missed an opportunity then to uh, to try and press home the demands? I mean, uh, the, the promises were made in June of uh, 2012. Um, one always senses that uh, these opportunities are just being pushed further and further back. No, he never misses an opportunity in fairness. Uh, but the promises, what were the promises? The promises were to uh, consider our position. Uh, and it was a separate sentence in the paragraph to what it said about uh, retroactive uh, recapitalization of banks. You can read one into the other, of course. Um, but again, I don't 
I, I think that the reality is that uh, when the uh, retroactive recapitalisation of banks comes in at the end of this year, uh, that they will be afraid to give us any money because there just isn't that kind of money in the fund and that it's all very well giving it to us. We're only small, thank you very much. But where do you go after that? You know, if Italy goes or Spain goes or whatever. So I think, no, in fairness, everybody plays the game and hopefully we'll get a little dividend further down the line. Uh, During um, her address, Angela Merkel did discuss the issue of uh, corporate tax in Ireland and uh, she said that we will have a level playing field. Um, That sounds a little bit ominous for Ireland's 12.5% corporate tax rate. Did you you pick that up at the meeting? It was awful. It was an awful moment actually. It was at the press conference in uh, the government buildings afterwards with just uh, the Chancellor and the Taoiseach and uh, it was the only time and I've been watching her very carefully because her facial expressions are very good and it was the only time she pursed her lips ever so slightly but she did. And uh, yes of course I mean this is a German uh, something they're very very interested in because they see every German company swishing their profits through our Ireland as uh, euros lost to Germany. Uh, so this is something very serious. But in fairness, there's a lot going on. Uh, Ireland uh, is um, uh, moving along with it as well and cooperating. The OSCE in Paris are doing up uh, basic, uh, base profit and um, base erosion and profit shifting report. Uh, Ireland is there in the middle of that. Of course, Ireland is in the worst offender. Uh, the, uh, the Dutch are probably even better at this in some ways than we are and of course there's the whole British thing of all their little islands and what they really do as well so uh, and of course when you look at tax rates Germany, France isn't too great either. What Ireland keeps saying is yeah we'll change when the rest of the world changes and I think it's fair enough to say that that will be slow and incremental So here to stay for the moment Um, on on the first day of the Congress the Ukrainian opposition leader uh, Yulia Tymoshenko and uh, the UDAR leader Vitaly Klitschko spoke on the current Ukrainian crisis. Um, that must have been a fascinating insight into into what's actually going on in Ukraine at the moment. Yes, and just as fascinating then, the day before there was, uh, or, or actually that day in Brussels, there was an emergency meeting where all the leaders gathered with the current uh, Prime Minister of Ukraine, who is Yulia Tymoshenko's party. Uh, and uh, he is also the person that America said should, should be the Prime Minister rather than Klitschko. Uh, but uh, Yes, it is fascinating because you have strange things happening always in Europe. What America wants, uh, Britain pushes, and this time it's not. I mean, America wants Europe to go in uh, guns blazing and during the meeting actually issued a statement saying what they were doing in terms of sanctions. But then on the other hand, there are a lot of interests at play here. Germany has huge immovable assets, you know, Volkswagen factories and everything else in Russia that it can't just pack up and put in a bag and run away with if things turn sour. Um, Britain has the has has the city of London, of course, with massive money there. So everybody, there is a little bit more at play here. The countries that are pushing hardest, of course, is Poland. But Poland seems to be slightly out of the loop. Uh, you have the smaller countries as well uh, that, that were formerly in the grasp of uh, of Russia and the USSR, and they're pushing like mad. So it's a very delicate, very difficult situation, and one has the feeling that, in fact, um, Russia will be left with Crimea, and the big thing is not. 
not to allow them to move any further. On that subject, I mean, you know, certainly from from uh, reading the press and seeing what's been going on, it se- it seems there's a huge level of determination by Russia to annex Crimea to protect its interests there. Um, realistically, is there anything Europe can actually do? I mean, I, I, I tend to agree that they may have to to let Crimea go, but is there anything that can actually be done? Yes, of course there is. But the problem is, is it worth it? And, uh, you know, we saw, we saw the markets react because they don't like the situation. And it didn't just um, knock a hell of a lot off, off the Russian rupal. It also affected European shares. Uh, so it's a matter of balance. How much are you willing to pay for Crimea? And I think, uh, how do you take it back? You now have a parliament set up. Um, you now have uh, the majority of the people there would be pro-Russian, if not Russian. Uh, so what do you do? You know, do you amass the armies in the frontier and go in? Uh, even when you were listening to the the um, Prime Minister of Ukraine, uh, he talked about we may be small, we may have been forced to give up our nuclear, we may be facing a nuclear power in Russia with its huge troops, but we have spirit and we have determination and we will fight. But he wasn't talking about fighting for Crimea, really. He was talking about further incursions, if you listen closely enough. So I will be very surprised if uh, Putin uh, gives on this one. He didn't in the two regions in Georgia and they're still so-called autonomous regions, you know. And okay, all right, America is even more fussy this time. It's absolutely adamant there won't be a repeat, but I, I, I'd i be very surprised if they find a way of, um, uh, of, of, of getting back Crimea. Crimea, perhaps an autonomous region, but in fact controlled by, 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 uh, by Russia. And the interesting thing, of course, is uh, about Ukraine, about Crimea, is that it doesn't have its own electricity. It doesn't have its own gas. It depends on everything coming from Ukraine for this. So that will take quite a while to change that. So there's a little bit of, 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 uh, things on the ground there that could, you know, where you could see, uh, that there will be some sort of a relationship and some sort of autonomous region probably. Uh, moving back to the, the Congress here in Dublin, uh, the party, uh, the EPP party nominated former uh, Luxembourg Prime Minister Jean-Claude Juncker, who is uh, a known European Federalist, uh, as the candidate for the European Commission president uh, with the election beginning in May. Um, he, his, his majority was less than was expected. Was that a surprise? Well, when I was in the hall beforehand, uh, the word was that Michel Barnier, the French commissioner who took over from Charlie McCreevy as internal market commissioner, was pushing very hard and was doing quite well, in fact. I mean, the, the, the French themselves were split, you know, and they, uh, the decision had been made that Juncker was to be the man. And it was very, uh, it was very interesting because a few um, weeks ago when Angela Merkel first suggested Juncker, we all thought it was a joke because she couldn't stand the man. You know, he smoked and he interfered with the smoke alarms in their, in their rooms where they're having meetings and she was absolutely disgusted with all of this behaviour. But here he is and he is in situ. I think the interesting thing is now, will he get the job? Uh, because certainly he didn't seem to be 100% certain that he would get the job if you listen to him very carefully afterwards. He said, you know, if our party is the largest, then I should. Or the EPP should get the job as president of the commission. But there's really nothing certain about that, either that they will get the majority in the next parliament or that, in fact, they will uh, take that job. And this, of course, I think is quite interesting because they could also be looking for somebody for the uh, council job. And 
you know, even though it might be a little bit ridiculous, I think there's a 10% chance of uh, Enderkenny uh, going there. And I was asking somebody, I was saying, well, he says he doesn't want to go, you know, 1916 coming up and all that sort of thing. He doesn't want to go. And they said, well, you know, when you get these guys uh, surrounding you, saying you're the one, that is very difficult to resist. So well, it, there's a little bit of Irish interest in it still, absolutely. you know. It's probably as good as it gets as well for uh, for, for the Taoiseach if he were offered something like that. Um, the what, what form of uh, of political campaigning would you expect during the run-up? I mean, it's going to be the first time we see sort of uh, US-style presidential elections. Uh, what, what sort of things can we expect uh, in the year? Well, I, I think it will vary very much, first of all. For the first time, we have the two groups Groups setting out their programs, as it were. But of course, when you're covering 28 countries, it can be quite difficult to find things that are in common, you know. Okay, you have um, uh, immigration, the economy, that kind of thing. But how do you get that across? And if you have Jantlau Junkers face up on posters, who, who knows him here? Or, 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 or uh, the socialist candidate or the liberal candidate, who knows them? So I, I think in Ireland it will continue to be as it is and as it always has been. But then the other countries have list systems. So that's quite different there. And I think maybe we'll see a little bit of play in that way. I, I'd hope that in Ireland that people will begin to realise that every country doesn't have um, uh, civil war uh, uh, political parties and that in fact their pa- political parties are based on right, left and centre. And Because it would give us a much better ability to read the situation and to read policies and see how things move. And that would certainly introduce a little bit more of the American style, if you like. And thank you very, very much for joining us on uh, The Currency and for filling us in on the recent EPP uh, Congress here in Dublin. Thank you very much, Nick. After the break, we'll consider the price of Scottish independence. The Currency with Nick Bullman, brought to you by Bexco Commercial FX Services, protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman. Don't forget to get in touch with the show. You can email the currency at newstalk.ie or tweet at the currency NT. And now going across the Irish Sea, three major FTSE 100 companies have publicly warned the Scottish people of the economic risks attached to voting in favour of independence. Royal Dutch Shell, Lloyds Bank and Barclays Bank have each outlined their concerns regarding instability in the financial markets and the uncertainty surrounding tax. Joining me on the line to discuss this further is financial editor of the Daily Telegraph, James Quinn. James, let's begin with the Royal Dutch Shell uh, story. What are the risks posed to the company if independence is established? From what Ben van Burden said, he's the chief exec of Royal Dutch Shell, um, he didn't really talk about the risk so much as the fact that obviously Shell has sort of a strong business in the North Sea, Aberdeen, sort of off the coast of Aberdeen, clearly uh, Aberdeen, Scotland, not part would not be part of the UK if, uh, if the Scottish people vote yes in September. So um, he said that, you know, he from his perspective, uh, continuity and stability are key um, when making investment decisions. A company like Shell makes investment decisions on a 10 or 20 year basis. Um, clearly, um, it will be hampered if, um, if the Scottish people decide to go for independence. And Royal Dutch Shell has obviously invested very heavily in the North Sea over the years. That's do you, right. Do you think a, a new Scottish parliament could impose levies on the company's infrastructure? Um, is that really where he's coming from? 
Well, clearly there are question marks over the sort of uh, fiscal future of an independent Scotland, whether or not it will be able to sort of raise enough taxes to support itself. Um, the oil economy of Scotland is, uh, if you look at Scotland sort of on an independent basis, is obviously the best part of the economy. So um, potentially, you know, in the same way that the Westminster government has uh, in the past imposed taxes on the oil industry um, there's no reason why the Scots wouldn't do the same. And it's not just oil companies, I think uh, Barclays and Lloyds um, have also raised some concerns about the tax position. How do you think the S&P and, and Alex Salmon can, can actually reassure companies on, on the tax issues? Um, to be clear, it's not necessarily just on the tax issue that companies like Barclays and Lloyds and also to be fair, Royal Bank of Scotland, um, uh, Standard Life, the Asset Manager, Alliance Trust, um, the Fund Manager have all have all warned a different. It's not necessarily just on tax. It's on um, sort of financial regulation as to who a regulator would be. It's on currency concerns. It's on domicile, which obviously relates to tax. In terms of how Alex Hammond and the sort of Scots Nationalists can. Uh, appeal to uh, those companies I'm not necessarily sure that they can you know a company like say um, Lloyd's Banking Group uh, it's sort of taxed on myself for historic reasons is in Glasgow um, because it took over the uh, TSB back in the mid-1990s and um, for sort of historic reasons has kept um, uh, its sort of tax base there and also bought, um, you know, uh, Halifax Bank of Scotland in the credit crisis and Bank of Scotland was obviously based in Edinburgh. But um, Lloyd's Banking Group these days is very much, you know, headquartered in London. Antonio Horta Rosario and the rest of the board sit down on Gresham Street in the city of London, heart of the square mile, you know, to sort of suggest to them that for they should keep their tax domicile in Scotland. It's just not going to happen. And a, a cross-party committee in Westminster, I believe, of, of Conservatives, Liberals and, and, uh, and Labour has made it pretty clear there's no possibility of currency union. Do you think, um, do you think that's just political posturing at the moment or is it, or is it real? No, I think... Um Forget what politicians say. If we look at what Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, said in his speech at the end of um, at the end of January on this, he sort of raised real concern about the possibility of a sort of sterling area and how that would work. Um, also, if the Scottish people do really want independence, quite why they would want to sort of sign themselves up to their interest rates being set from the Bank of England in London, um, I don't really know. Yeah, and uh, what's the overall EU response been? I know that Barroso came out and was was fairly negative some weeks ago, but has that been uh, has that translated into to to anything else? No, Barroso has been the loudest voice to date, as it were. Obviously, the Scottish nationalists um, came out following his comments and sort of downplayed them. Um, I think. In reality, as it says in the sort of Scotland Future white paper that the uh, Yes campaign put out. Um, sort of a tail end last year, it would be up for a negotiation and um, those negotiations could take some time. It's not just to do with the UK or the EU, it's to do with all 27, well, 26 other member states. And Citigroup came out with a report yesterday, I think, saying that Scotland uh, may not be economically viable uh, yes. uh, um, uh, and that their, their credit rating, etc., would, would, would not be the sort of AAA that the Bank of England holds. Is that uh, a further consideration, do you think, for the S&P? Um, I think it should be. I mean, it will certainly, for those um, voters who sort of care about the sort of future of Scotland's economy, to 
suggest that it would not be able to sort of raise um, money in the sort of international markets in the way that it would like to. No AAA rating is um, is the rating a country needs, as it were. Um, Citigroup suggested that Scotland, if deprived of a formal currency union, would only qualify for a single A credit rating. That would put it on them the same position as countries like Botswana and Trinidad and Tobago, given Scotland's uh, sort of uh, well-known for sort of financial services, companies like Standard Life, RBS, um, Scottish widows, you'd have to question whether they would want to stay there under, under that. And finally, um, look, you know, we've talked about the economics of the situation, but are Scottish voters going to vote with their wallet or their hearts at the end of the day? Well, I think there is a real um, concern that all these sort of companies, which maybe historically have been Scottish, but are now being kind of perceived to be sort of on the English uh, sort of no side of the debate, um, may sort of only knock the Scottish voters and sort of lead people to think, well, do you know what, just because X, Y, Z company says they don't want to stay here anymore, we'll show them, we can do this. And I think there is a real risk of that. And there's a real risk of people kind of, you know, uh, companies sort of increasing the yes vote by coming out in this way. James, thank you very much for joining us. Coming up, we have Professor of Finance at Trinity College Dublin, Brian Lucy, in the studio to discuss the current banking landscape. Stay tuned. The Currency with Nick Bullman, brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services, protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman. Now, Europe's banking landscape is currently in a state of flux, with ECB rates staying put at 0.25%, an AQR review just around the corner, and a third force in Irish banking currently being explored. Joining me to discuss this changing environment is Professor of Finance at the School of Business in Trinity College, Dublin, Brian Lucy. Brian, let's begin with the whispers of a third major bank to be introduced to Ireland because last week Minister of Finance Michael Noonan indicated his desire to establish a third force in Irish banking and referenced a possible merger between Ulster Bank and permanent TSB. The minister said he's looking for a bank with, quote, a big balance sheet. That could become a significant player in the Irish banking system. The question, I guess, is does Ireland need a third bank and is there room for one? We need several more banks. We don't just need a third bank. I think we need much greater competition in the banking sector. It escapes my analysis how putting together two wrecks is going to create something which is not a wreck. It would be pointless creating a big bank with a big balance sheet which is riddled with holes. Now, what we should do is we should think about what do we want our banking sector to do? And we wanted to do three things. We wanted to intermediate credit between those who have money and those who need money. It can't do that at the moment because it's broken. It's clogged full of still uh, the remains of the, the, the crisis which we've gone through. We wanted to be able to take risk. But we also wanted not to be able to take the kind of risks that result absent a properly functioning European banking resolution mechanism, which has got centralised losses and gains, that results in, 10 years down the line, yet another bank failing. We'd be better off with thinking about breaking up the two pillar banks into smaller, nimbler units, making it easier and friendlier for banking to start and to fail, and to try and encourage the creation of whole other networks 
of credit-based activity. But Minister Noonan is really, I, I suppose, trying to uh, introduce some competition into uh, the banking environment. And as you said at the beginning, we, we probably need more banks than just three. Mm. Does that leave any room for a, a foreign bank to come in, assuming that the, the, the current proposal is for putting two zombie banks together? Yeah. Um, you'd have to ask, why have foreign banks not come in? Apparently, we're the best boy in class. Apparently, we've turned a corner. You know, if we were really as good as the spin has us, we would see Santander thinking about taking over AIB or Bank of Ireland. We would see HSBC, you know, other banks thinking about coming in and and driving and modernising the Irish banking system. They're not doing so because they're looking at an economy which is still very, very hampered. So the problem we have is that we haven't fixed our credit intermediation system. We haven't decided then what kind of system we want and to where we want the credit to flow. Until we do those things, and that will be a tough discussion, we're not going to be able to entice anybody to come in. I would be very surprised if there haven't been people who have gone to the central bank and said we'd we'd be interested in setting up a bank and have found that because up to now the rubric was we need to have a duopoly and it would be unfriendly and it would have been slow and it would have been bureaucratic. Now we're turning around and saying, oh, sorry, by the way, we don't need a duopoly. We need to have competition. Well, you know, one of the things bankers like above all else is consistency. If they don't know what the minister wants, because the minister himself doesn't know what he wants, then they're going to just walk away and go somewhere more productive like Albania. Well, let's just uh, examine that a bit further, because uh, another alternative might be that a bank like AIB could sell their debts to a foreign bank and link into that stronger balance sheet. Do you think that would change the banking dynamics in Ireland? And and, uh, I suppose it assumes that the debts are all recognised or recognisable. that's the problem. Um, We have effectively, despite the fact that they're trying to convert themselves to the virtues of commercial bank lending, we have effectively got mortgage banks in AIB and Bank of Ireland. The modal loan they have is a mortgage, and that mortgage is, at best, okay. If they were to sell off to BlackRock, let's say, their mortgage book, they would be sitting on a big loss, which would mean we would be sitting on a big loss, which means we would be rescuing the bank again. We didn't deal with the mortgages when we had the opportunity, and now we're faced with the legacy of that. So, yeah, effectively what you're saying is something like what was done with the commercial side. You know, NAMA was the mechanism we chose there. There was no, the decision was made to be no NAMA for mortgages. And that legacy is going to haunt us for some considerable time. Moving on to um, ECB rates, the European Central Bank uh, announced that it's not going to change its current interest rate from 0.25%. Um, despite IMF pressure for a reduction and a fear that uh, inflation rates um, are going to remain in the danger zone of below 1%. I think they were reported at 0.8% last month. Um, Mario Draghi has said that uh, in his latest economic information uh, bulletin that recovery was on track and needed no extra push. Um, The bank also acknowledges that inflation rates will remain at current levels for now, but predicts um, levels rising to a desirable 1.5% by 2016. Do you think the ECB's inflation rate uh, prediction is credible, given strong deflationary forces that seem to be building in Europe? I don't. I don't know what the rate will be. Uh, And I think the idea of an inflation rate is probably outdated, because we're seeing very different patterns across 
broad economic sectors in areas where in, in this country, in energy and in regulated areas, you're seeing quite significant inflation. In other areas, you're seeing deflation. We've seen massive deflation in a lot of the Irish sub-indices of, infl- of CPI for the last five or six years. And that's been reflected across the periphery. Well, that's very interesting because I've uh, I've used the term in deflation before, which of course isn't a real economic mm, term. But it's a good one. But it's a good. <laughs> but it um, but it but it means that you have food price inflation, you have um, uh, a resource type inflation in oil and other yeah. sectors. But you can have that running directly alongside deflation, which I think is what you're saying. Exactly, exactly what's happening. In deflation is a really good word, which I'm going to steal and use as my own. Uh, well, my pleasure. Um, look. We're in a balance sheet recession in Europe and we know how to get out of balance sheet recessions. We just don't want to do it. And it's 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 worse than the political inertia. I mean, the politicians, I, I can't remember who said it, but we know what we have to do. We just don't know how to get re-elected. The ECB doesn't have that problem. It has a problem in that it's got a bunch of, you know, truculent Germans who will run to the constitutional courts every time they think there's a problem. But somewhere along the way, somebody has to tell the German constitutional court that, yeah, you can do what you want, but here's the reality, is that you are subservient to the euro uh, treaties. If you don't like that, that's too bad. We know in this country that much of the good that we've seen has been coming because our Supreme Court, our High Court, our judiciary, our, um, our administration has been overruled by Europe time and again. And that's going to have to be the norm. So, if the... ECB doesn't want to engineer, uh, a strange, you know, you want a central bank to engineer inflation. They run the real risk of prolonging this through deflation or, or in deflation. So things like maybe negative interest rates, things like uh, deposit negative interest rates to encourage what is working in the banking system to flush the money out into, in, 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 into the productive sectors of the economy is needed. But that won't help if you're adding more credit into an environment where the existing credit can't be repaid and can't be written off. So the albatross of the debts across the various balance sheets need to be dealt with. And if we can't deal with them through growth and we won't deal with them through uh, inflation, we aren't going to deal with them at all, it appears. They'll just sit there. I, I uh, left Japan in 1989, mm. uh, just before they started their sort of um, their deflationary cycle. Do, do you think Europe is heading for a Japan-style deflationary trap? I think parts of Europe are in it. I think Greece is probably in it. Um, I think we run a, ra- a danger in this country of, of going in there. I think countries like the Netherlands countries like France run a really, really significant danger of getting stuck in a permanent cycle of, you know, we had it in the 70s with stagflation and we'll have it now with, with a deflationary secular stagnation is, is the new buzzword in, in economic terms where you're stuck and you, you know, cannot get growth, you cannot get inflation, you cannot get the money supply moving quickly enough. The ECB has uh, has quite a lot of pressure on it at the moment to do a better job on the upcoming asset quality review, the so-called AQR, mm. uh, than the European Banking Authority, which I think first time out underestimated the capital required by some 10 times or something. Yeah. Um, they weren't even within an order of magnitude. Yeah, exactly. So uh, how well do you think the Irish banks are going to do and how much capital 
do you suspect will need to be raised across Europe? Because there's some quite big mm. banks involved. Well, there was a, a couple of uh, papers in Vox EU uh, a number of weeks ago which looked at if you were to really push through from top-down impairment figures, what would you need? Under a variety of assumptions, they came up with figures that were in the hundreds of billions of euro needed, most of which were concentrated in the big German, French and Dutch banks. What's happened is the, the core has been able to get away with the problems in their banking system because the, the periphery has been taking all the oxygen. The core banking systems are still very, very broken. Admiral Bing was shot by the British for failing to take an impregnable fortress and he was shot, as Voltaire said, pour encourager les autres. I think they need to shoot a bank. They'll have to pick a middle-sized one in a country that doesn't really matter. So if I was a shaky bank in Austria or, you know, if I was a, a regional Italian bank, I'd be feeling worried because, you know, they will be the ones thrown to the wolves. I think probably the Irish banks are okay in the sense that they're, they don't need that much money. If they were to recognise the losses, as we said earlier on, they might need a temporary, you know, five or six billion. But I think we're at that level where, you know, the capital they have is there to absorb losses and they could probably do it. So I think, I think we're probably okay. So um, considering ECB rates, the, the, uh, the AQR that's up and coming, um, the problems that seem to be resurfacing in Greece, uh, how do you see the banking landscape in Europe? I think if you look five years from now, you're going to see a smaller banking landscape, a smaller banking footprint. Governments don't want to allow banks to fail. It's seen as too problematic. The way to ensure that you can have banks fail and unwind is to have smaller, nimbler, more focused banks. If you want to look at a banking system that works, that has weathered this storm pretty much unscathed, look at the Danish system. We had a situation where transforming the Irish banks towards a Danish model, and you know it's a, it, it, it's a complicated way in which they do their business, but it's a way which has lasted since uh, 1810, pretty much un, unchanged. Senator Sean Barrett proposed a bill in the Senate which said, effectively, let's work on a footprint towards making the banks more like the Danish banks. And the government came in and said, that's a great idea. It's absolutely where we should go. We're not going to do it. And I think that's happening across Europe. We know what kind of banking systems we want to have. They're afraid for a variety of political, small p, large p, and economic dislocatory reasons to actually push the button and move the banks towards a system which would be composed of many, many competing units, any one of which could, any many of which could fail, and which would not expose sovereigns to the problems which they have seen. Professor Brian Lucy, thanks very much for joining us on The Currency this evening. After the break, on the fifth year anniversary of the lows in US stock markets, we'll have an update on where we stand now and what lies ahead. Stay tuned. The Currency with Nick Bullman, brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services, protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency. Now we turn to the markets with the US stock market recovery complete and new highs being established. Owen Callan of Danske Bank joins us with his market outlook. Last week, uh, March the 6th, saw 
the uh, US S&P marquee five-year anniversary from the lows that it hit just after the uh, the crash at 666, which is rather a devilish number. Um, the markets have since risen some uh, 2.8 times since then, over a 1,000 points rise. Um, how do you feel about uh, the, the valuations on the US market at the moment, Owen? Um, certainly, uh, given the weak data we've seen in the U.S. Uh, over the first two months of the year, um, and, and given the relatively moderate growth outlook that we have for, for the rest of 2014, they certainly seem quite aggressively priced. Um, and that's not to say they're unfairly priced, but certainly they are assuming uh, a, a better case scenario rather than a bad case scenario, I think, uh, for the rest of this year. There, there's an assumption that growth will re-engage now that the weather uh, situation seems to have stabilized in, in the U.S. We had very, very bad weather, obviously, in, in the northeast of the country in, in the first two months of the year, that seems to have now abated a bit. And there is an assumption, I think, that growth starts to re-engage uh, as we hit the spring um, and that the economy will kind of normalise from that perspective. I think as well that the problems that they had in terms of the government debt and the government shutdown now appear to be behind us. I think there's also a, a, a hope that that is not a problem for the rest of the year. So I think there is certainly some um, good assumptions priced into the, these prices, and, and that's not necessarily unfair. But certainly, if there was a, any, any further problems, if there was some type of risk event that occurred, over the next six months, certainly they could be due some type of setback. And I think that is what's what been worrying people over the last few, few months uh, and the last few weeks in particular, and that's why we have seen some volatility. But that said, we have pushed higher again this week. And as you said, we are at uh, almost three times uh, what we were at the low five years ago. And it's it's quite impressive. It, it certainly seems to vindicate what the Fed has been doing over the last years. But, but certainly there is a, a risk of a setback if we were to get a setback in the general economic outlook. And volatility in the U.S. remains relatively low, though, when compared to, for example, Europe. Yes, certainly. You know, in the US, we, we typically have kind of plus or minus one percent days in most of the equities. We the, the banking system over there seems relatively uh, robust. There certainly isn't any banks are worried about it at the moment. Uh, in, in Europe, it's obviously quite different. We're seeing much more like two or three percent moves on certain days. We still have certain countries like Greece where there's huge volatilities in stock in Spain and Italy. We see quite large volatility in stocks at certain times, and obviously we have the huge, hugely important uh, banking stress test to come from Europe later on this year, which I think is really what's going to drive markets one way or the other uh, in Europe. Over, over the course of 2014, depending how they pan out. And how do you think investors are sort of reacting to the Ukrainian situation? I realise that uh, that's, that's, a big, that's a big topic, but um, we, are you seeing any investor reaction at the moment? Um, certainly, the, the, the issue of emerging markets from uh, both an economic as well as political uh, standpoint uh, is now, I suppose, a bigger issue for, for investors. And we've seen that it started in Turkey before Christmas. It's uh, fed through into Venezuela, into Argentina, and into Ukraine uh, in the last couple of months. And it, I think it's really making people reassess uh, some of these riskier parts of the world. And, and it's not really an emerging markets problem as much as certain parts of the emerging markets are potentially a problem. And I really, I think investors are trying to figure out the winners and who are the losers in these emerging markets, uh, which have performed very, very well over the last five years, um, and, and, and where their capital should be allocated or where it should not be allocated. So I think people looking at Ukraine, assuming that it doesn't escalate into a full-on war situation, a full-on invasion uh, by Russia into the Ukraine, um, and they're assuming, again, a good outcome arrives from this, uh, but also they are a little bit worried that some, there, there could be some sort of spillover effect of this uh, in terms of what we're seeing happen. It's obviously not something that investors are particularly comfortable with, and whenever politics enters into the, into the economic or into the market's point of view, that certainly does scare investors, and that's why we have seen some volatility again over the last few weeks. 
Yeah, so so what you're saying is you're seeing differentiation amongst emerging markets and investors making those choices carefully. Yeah, exactly. I think we're, we're trying to see uh, investors choose the winners and losers within the emerging markets, which ones are robust enough to handle the Fed tapering, to handle uh, the political risks that we now kind of see in, in certain countries, and to handle, I suppose, the normalization that we may see in emerging market uh, assets in terms of the pricing, the valuation that investors are willing to give to them. Uh, and, and some will be winners and some will be losers. And I think that's what investors are trying to work through at the moment. And then just moving on to China, they, they had their first onshore bond default uh, last week. Uh, exports fell too in February, some 18% with imports rising. Um, what, what is the view of investors on Asia at the moment and, and how complex is the situation there? Uh, I, I think it's our last point, which I think is really uh, the, the issue. It is a very, very complex situation. Obviously, the Chinese economy is huge. It's still growing at a very, very impressive rate. 7 to 8% is what it's grown in the last years. That's what we're going to expect again for the next few years. But certainly, the, the, there has been uh, a fear that there's a credit bubble uh, that has been formed in China over the last couple of years in particular, and um, that certain parts of that bubble will either have to be deflated or may in fact pop, as you said, uh, the first onshore uh, bond default uh, that we received from China this week. Uh, and there was also some problems with some other investment trusts uh, in, in, in previous uh, weeks that, that the Chinese government has had to deal with. So I think, again, people are looking for the weaknesses in the Chinese economy, uh, while also still accepting that it will still probably be pretty fundamentally strong and a very strong driver of growth, both in Asia itself, but also across the globe. Obviously, what happens to China tends to pass through into the rest of the other global economy as well. So I think people are hoping that these defaults are still relatively uh, individual in nature, still relatively low in, in, in terms of how many, in, in terms of the quantum of them. Uh, but certainly it's an issue that people are now getting a little bit more worried about and putting a little bit more focus on whether these defaults uh, are, are going to be a bigger issue for 2014 and 2015, whether the scale of them will become bigger, whether the quantum of them will become bigger, uh, and, and maybe then what the pass-through effect of that is into the global economy. Will it be a localized issue infecting local Chinese investors, or will there be global funds who are exposed to this, and therefore do we need to take action uh, in terms of taking capital out of certain funds or out of certain investments. So it's certainly something that people are watching and people will continue to watch more closely over the course of this year. But so far, we've had relatively few of these defaults and I think that's what people still hope is the way it pans out. And just coming back to Europe very quickly, um, the uh, euro has had a phenomenal strength over the past couple of months. I think it uh, recently hit a new six-month high. What sort of impact is that going to have on the European economy and, and the outlook for, for, uh, for rates? Well, certainly given that the uh, general EU, the general ECB um, game plan for this is that we should try and export ourselves uh, out of this crisis. We should try and make ourselves more competitive. We should try and sell our goods and services to the rest of the world. Uh, a high euro does not help with that. And that's why some people find the ECB um, uh, view on, on how the economic recovery will take shape uh, somewhat, uh, I, I suppose, uh, contradictory to, 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 to what they say. Uh, if there's a high euro, that's going to make it difficult for exporters to export their goods and services. Uh, it's going to keep inflation rates lower, which the ECB have recognized is a problem. Most central banks have taken a proactive approach to how they manage their FX uh, regimes against other currencies. The ECB is alone amongst the major central banks and not doing that. And I think Draghi's comments there on Thursday at the ECB press conference suggested that he is realizing it is becoming more of an issue. It is keeping inflation low, perhaps 0.4% lower than it should be. Um, and, and I think maybe we'll see a slightly more proactive and slightly more uh, mindful ECB in terms of uh, how it looks at the currency. And it, it is something that could become a major problem if we get over 140 against the dollar, um, certainly uh, over the course of this year. Owen, thank you very much for joining us.
Well, that's it for this week. If you want to get in touch with any comments, email thecurrency at newstalk.ie or tweet at thecurrencynt. I'll be back next Sunday evening at 6pm. Until then, farewell and take care. The Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years.